Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. So I'm really excited to today to speak to a poet, Mark Wunderlich, who is a uh, an accomplished poet, the author of several volumes. I'm going to mention a few of them, and we're talking about the poet Rilke today, who actually is one of the two epigraphs for your most recent book, God of Nothingness. And I, I'd love to ask you about that quote from Rilke's Greener Elegies. But before we start, so Mark is a poet who's published um, several books, including Voluntary Servitude, The Anchorage, The Earth Avails, and then, as I mentioned, most recently, God of Nothingness with Grey Wolf Press, beautiful book. So um, I have it right here. So I'm really, I'm really happy to actually go through that. And you also teach at Bennington College and you are director of the Poetry at Bennington program and the creative writing poetry part, is that correct? So I, um, I actually direct the graduate writing program. So okay. the MFA program there. And, um, and I used to direct uh, a reading series which is called Poetry at Bennington. Um, and I'm no longer the director, but I founded, founded that one. Great. And then also for our listeners, um, you are on Twitter, Mark C. Wunderlich. Um, the podcast can be found at thinkaboutit.podcast on Instagram. I'm Uli Bear on Twitter, Uli.Bear on Instagram. So please follow us for more information also on this episode because uh, we will put all the links to all of your books and publications and your own website, markwunderlich.com, on our links for our pages. First of all, uh, thank you for taking time to talk about Rilke today. It's my pleasure. He's been a, a, a touchstone and a, and a favorite of mine for, for as long as I can remember. Yeah, and you taught a course uh, last fall, I believe. That's how I first sort of noticed you by teaching the letters to a young poet, but you taught it as an old-fashioned correspondence course. People actually wrote letters, right? Yes. Yeah, it was a bit of a stunt, I will freely admit. 
but it also was happening, of course, in the in the middle of the you know the first year of the pandemic, when we were faced as a teacher, you know, um, I was faced with having to find new ways of teaching classes, right. and I just wasn't convinced that you know seeing my talking head on a screen was necessarily the 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 best or the only way of working with students and conveying things. And as a director of a low residency MFA program, which has really been modeled on this idea of kind of deep and sustained correspondence over a period of time, I wanted to see if that would work with a literature seminar and, um, and with undergraduates. And so I just, you know, we were given great latitude at Bennington to come up with new ways of teaching during this time. You know, it's a progressive liberal arts college and they said, what do you what do you want to come up with? And I propose to do it entirely through the postal mail. Oh, very nice. So, and then you took letters to a young poet as a model or as a kind of starting point for your students. That was really the kind of genesis as I thought about these. You know, I've, I've as I've read those letters and um, and spent so much time with them. And of course, I, you know, I have. I think it's like a three volume complete set of all of of, of edited real because. Uh, letters. And he wrote thousands and thousands of letters in his lifetime. I mean, there are so many of them. Um, many of them are, are just as dull as they can be. And some of them are, are transcendent. Some of them are gossipy. Some of them are just, they really transport you to this time. And I was just thinking about my, my, you know, my undergraduate students at the college and, you know, wondering if they've ever actually had an experience of writing long letters right. um, and sending them in the mail. Of course, what I didn't anticipate, um, you know, how could we have was a, a sort of systematic effort by the federal government to sabotage and really dismantle the, po the post office in order to prevent people from voting by mail. So the idea of a correspondence course of, a, a, you know, students posting letters also suddenly became a kind of political you know, it, it had this political dimension and it gained a kind of urgency that my students, that excited my students, certainly. And, um, but also created some real problems for us. I will tell you this, this is the most astonishing thing about it. One of my students is in Poland and I was con very concerned about sending letters back and forth to her in Europe because you know, I had no idea how long that would take. Her letters were were more reliably delivered, more swiftly and more reliably than ones mailed within the United States, than ones that I was sending from here in the Hudson Valley to Vermont in particular, which were delayed, you know, sometimes took a week and a half. Hers arrived back and forth from Poland in three days. That's amazing. Wow. <laughs> well, it's interesting what you said, Rilke, he wrote, as you said, probably in sort of more than 15,000 letters in his life. He died at age 51, so it wasn't such a long life in a way. And he actually says in one of the testaments in 1921 or 22, he says, my letters are as important to me as my poetry, which I've always found really remarkable because he's kind of known as the great culmination. I always think of him as the last great romantic poet in a way, living in a modern age already, right? He yeah. lives in the yeah. 20th century, lives through World War I, but he still has, hangs on to some idea of romanticism, we'll get to that. But for him, the letters are both like a rehearsal stage and a kind of working room where he tries out everything. And I always pictured him as warming up because when you're not inspired to write a poem, you put pen to paper and you start writing uh, letters. 
And some of the letters that you said are dull. In one, in one of his poems, he has his analogies. He says, it's like um, a postal office on a Sunday, <laughs> desolate and deserted. <laughs> When there's nothing new, nothing happens, no, nothing arrives, no letters today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I love reading, reading writers' letters, and you know, so many of them are are really expand our notion of who that that poet was. And you know, Elizabeth Bishop, with the publication of her letters, suddenly her body of work yeah. quintuples. You know, I mean, we right. see this this sort of vast. Her, her sense of, you know, uh, also the deep friendships that she cultivated and uh, with other writers and the, the tremendous intimacy and, and, the, and also the critical acumen that she deploys in those letters, it, they're, they're so wonderful. But of course, the thing about a letter is that it's, it's really one person speaking to another person. It's about that, that, that absolute intimacy of correspondence between individuals. And, um, and that's, that, you know, is one of one of the things that I think we love most about them. It's a little like eavesdropping. We're kind of included in something that wasn't really intended for us. And in the class, um, in this correspondence course, um, that was the, the the main thing that I noted almost immediately from the students is that they were able to affect a particular tone with me, um, which was at once um, kind of intimate, but also um, they were writing about what they were reading and they were thinking in it. Would the immediacy of these letters, I mean, Rilke writes these letters to a young poet you took as your starting point, which many, many, many students encounter or assign. They're also sort of a popular, practically a meme by now. They're kind of a reference point for so many people. Marius Vargas Llosa has rewritten them. Anna Devia Smith has rewritten them. There's been a kind of artist's response. They were written to a 16-year-old boy who wanted to be a poet in a boarding school where Rilke had been a student and the first thing he says, he says, you write some poems, let me read them. Well, they're really terrible, not good at all. There's one that has a hint of personality, but even that one. And then he says, you're making the gravest mistake. You're looking for approval or criticism by writing to me, and you should not look beyond yourself at all. So the first advice he gives is go back and look at yourself. But I, I wanted to stay with this immediacy because for a lot of people, Rilke has this very strange effect that you start reading it and it feels as if someone is speaking to you personally. Yeah. I think it may be different from some other poets who give you a lot of things and a lot of room in your mind or in your life, but this one, he, he seems to address you directly yeah. in, many, in many of the phrases, even as complicated as the poems can get. Yeah, I mean, you think of something like, you know, um, uh, you must change your life, you know, this kind of directive that we get. Um, uh, the, um, and the, the sort of, the, the kind of declarations, the, the admonitions and advice that he dispenses in Letters to a Young Poet. You know, it's very interesting, of course, to imagine he's what, like 28 or 29 when he's right. writing his letters, and he sounds like this great sage, you know, and he's writing to a 16-year-old, so there is definitely a sort of difference, but there's a way in which what I love about those letters is, you know, I, I, I'm glad that I assigned them in this class because I think when you're 19 or 20, that's just the right age to be writing, reading these, you know? I think if once you're maybe a little older, you might view them a little more skeptically, you might be asking questions about, about these kind of stances. But what we really see is Rilke trying out these things. He's sort of assuring himself as much as he is writing to this, writing to this, you know, interlocutor who's there 
kind of you know receiving this information who of course does not go on to become a poet and i also find that first letter so funny in some ways too because he says um, you shouldn't be asking me to critique your poems. And he says, you know, you asked me to critique your poems. And then he's, it's, um, I can't, I couldn't possibly read your terrible poems. I mean, he does sort of say that, but then he does, you know, right. then of course it's obvious that he does and he, you know, contradicts himself. So these letters are often kind of contradictory. And, and, and I think like a lot of writers letters, you're using them to work things out. As well, let me stay with one thing you just said. In some ways, there is a kind of, they, they are sort of working on contradictions and tension. And he basically says, you want to be an artist? You won't let you know how to become an artist? Well, you are making the first mistake by asking me. So there's a weird sort of, he hooks you into this tension. And then when you said, when you're 19, 20, when you're an adolescent, they speak to you. I always think what you just called, where you get a bit more skeptical later on, but Rilke's poetry wants to remind you, you, you should never become more skeptical of this kind of being moved. You know, you should never let go of this capacity to be passionately for or against something. Yeah, I mean, he talks about that, you know, the idea of the interpreted world, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, what is it? Gedeutete is the word, right? So he's right. using that that, that word of, you know, um, that that's the thing that blocks us from being able to see into the open or openness, das offene, right? So, um, and that children and animals still possess that. And we, because we've, we have language to describe things, we assign, you know, there's this, this sort of veil of culture that comes to inter, is interposed between us and that greater experience of a sort of spiritual reality, I think, is what he's thinking about, so. That's an interesting starting point. He says in the beginning of the first elegy of the Duino elegies, so if we can look at them for a moment, if you can just sort of what you just said, he says, we're not very, we're little at home, or we're uncomfortably at home, or unreliably at home in the interpreted world. Mm -hmm. And sort of in the beginning of this poem, you think, so he's talking about consciousness or human self-awareness that that's both our capacity for knowing ourselves, but it blocks us in a weird way from being ourselves, yeah. from existing, right? Yeah. In some ways, this is, you know, he, he, he comes to the two when he talks about love and, um, you know, talking about the way in which the lover once is, you know, that you need in order to experience um, this, this sort of aspect of the divine you through love. Love is the most reliable way in which we can do that. But the problem is that you have to have the beloved, you know, that, that you have to have the love object there who's in the way, you know, they're both necessary for you to direct that feeling and attention, but they're also in the way. But that's a classical, that's, that comes from a classical, you know, um, from, from classical philosophy. So it's a sort of old notion that he's using there. But, you know, when I, I, I think that there are all of these, this sense that there are these things that we create, that we manufacture, that, that stand in the way of us seeing into this um, uh, you know, into, into what I guess I believe is, is the eternal, um, his notion of um, a kind of everlastingness, a, a place of a kind of, you know, spiritual freedom in some ways. And it's often death, you know, it's, this is a lie. It's not necessarily the same thing, but it's a, that there's this world that lies beyond our world. And, you know, and I think his poems are always gesturing toward that so much of the time. 
It's interesting, right? Through love, he says, we have kind of a hint or a sense that there's something we want, which is to be fulfilled or to be whole or to be complete or something like that. That the lover gives us a kind of weird hint. And it's not just for Rilke, which is, I think, always really important for people, it's not an abstracted sense of kind of spiritual love. This is erotic love. Yeah. And he has a series of erotic poems. He's, he was very famous and he wrote about when he met one of his many, many lovers, he would prepare for days for her to come over. And people find those letters really unsettling because he's actually quite explicit that sexuality and sex are an important component of being in touch with this dimension of ourselves yeah. that otherwise eludes us. Yeah. But to stay with love before we go to death, because you're, the quote from... Um, the your book God of Nothingness in the beginning of that is actually kind of a complicated reference moving from love to death maybe but with love you, when you said earlier he says about the 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 lover or the person we're interested in they kind of block our vision he says we have this sense of something great could happen but then this face is in front of us and I always like this kind of contradiction and they, when you said it's an old trope when I read it for the first time I was really struck by it it's like this seems like a new insight <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember my Greek um, philosophers here to remember exactly who it was who said it, but um, um, yeah, I mean, it is, it, you know, that is, and maybe he came upon it on himself, you know, he's, he's as we know, he's, he's well read, but idiosyncratically, you know, I mean, it's like he really followed his own nose and, and it was, and was a true autodidact, but he's not a completist by any means in terms of what he, what he read. So he may certainly have stumbled upon this himself or it just kind of, kind of picked it up in, in those ways. And I, you know, I guess I'm jumping around a little bit. I was asked a question in this class yesterday about his relationship to contemporary philosophy during that time. And, and honestly, I didn't really have that answer, but I kept thinking about Nietzsche and I kept thinking about Lou Andrea Salome and, you know, she was his great teacher. You know, I think she was really. That's right. Um, and, but she was also so steeped in psychoanalysis too. So, you know, in, in Freudianism. And so I think that was probably just as influential. And then I was also kind of remembering that in Duino Castle when he was there and hanging out, you know, the princess, the princess um, is conducting seances, right? right? So that she's a spiritualist. She has these beliefs. It's, it's not clear. I can't find anything that Rilke shared those beliefs, but this voice that we get in these poems, mm -hmm. this, this sort of posthumous voice, this, right. you know, sometimes kaleidoscopic and shifting voice that happens through here. The idea of these trafficking with angels, this idea of the is it the supernatural? Is, are these metaphors? You know, these are, are questions. But I think that those are probably the things, you know, theology, psychology, right. um, this idea of spiritualism in, in some way, um, his interest in Russian orthodoxy, his Catholic upbringing, um, the kind of multicultural, multi-religious, multilingual world of the Habsburg Empire. Uh, you know, all of that is kind of informing him and he's taking it in. Whether he was a scholar of any kind of particular philosophy, I can't see it, but it's it's maybe all over. I think Nietzsche is, you're right, it's a good reference. Lou Andrea Salome, so 
she writes one of the very first short books on Nietzsche, actually. So Nietzsche proposed marriage to her. She declined, of course, like everybody declined Nietzsche. <laughs> then this is long, then Nietzsche dies in 1900. Rilke is in school. So he probably reads, he doesn't read Nietzsche because no one reads Nietzsche in school at this time. But through right. Lou Andrea Salome, he knows who she is. He actually reads Freud because of Lou Andrea Salome. And he meets Freud in Munich in 1914 in a hotel. And then she really forces him, Rilke, to meet Freud. And he's not that interested. And he says, psychoanalysis is not for me because it'll exorcise my demons and also scare the angels in my psyche, which means he loses creativity, which basically means I'm neurotic or I would, I would, would be in language of that time. And Lou Andrea Salome kind of then backs away and says, okay, fine, fine, fine. Psycho. But then every time Freud published a book, Rilke had it sent to him and commented immediately. So he was, as you're saying, he was sort of interested in things, but he never subordinated himself to anybody else's thought. And I think the elegies are really strange because they are 10 poems, but they have the status of someone like Heidegger writing Being in Time or Kierkegaard writing Either Or or Nietzsche yeah. writing Zarathustra. They want to sort of give us a sense of all of existence. Yeah, yeah I, you know, I was comparing it um... Uh, yesterday when a, a, a student sort of asking a question about it and I said, you know, I, I think of this, I, we, we, you call them sort of the last great romantic poet, but I, I also think that in the Guduino elegies, mm -hmm. he becomes, you know, he begins this path toward, it's, these are modernist poems. And I, you know, I think of, mm -hmm. of the wasteland in particular. I think of the ways in which this might mirror and speak to what Eliot is doing in the wasteland. Um, it's the sort of shifting perspectives, the, 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 the movement, the way the poems kind of move and change, the way they are, are destabilize you as a reader. You're not always sure who is speaking or where this voice is coming from. And, um, and that to me seems to be much more of this gesture toward the modern. That's, that's real, how Rilke is, is sort of living inside modernism, I think. But, you know, um, but there also is, you know, and, and that, that idea of like, psychoanalysis is going to, you know, it's going to ruin my creativity. It's like, you know, it's th through my neurotic my neuroses and um, that it'll 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 make me understand myself and therefore I'll lose all of my instincts, which is an excuse that many many artists have given for not going into for not pursuing therapy and to excuse bad behavior. Right. But um, <laughs> you know, over time, um, you know, I, I mean, uh, but it's it, what we're seeing there is just the very beginning of that impulse too, right. because you know Freud is inventing this so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's kind of an exciting thing to think that this is happening. It's, it is, I had read that he did send his books to Freud and, um, but I don't know what Freud's reaction to them was. Yeah, so I'm not aware of any reference, no. We, but he's, it's right to put him next to Eliot and a kind of modernist is kind of um, different and perhaps dissonant and kind of even incommensurate voices that they're different voices speaking in the poem. And the elegy set up, but where I think he's in the late romantic, he sets out to answer these big questions where the romantics still believe in creativity, genius, nature, the sublime. Rilke doesn't really believe in anything giving us consolation, except, as you said, love and death give us some sense that something greater exists within our life, not beyond it, not outside. He's brought up as a Catholic boy and 
kind of renounces the church. As you said, Lou Andreas Alami, I think, shifts him a bit out of that. And he's, he uses the angels not at all in a way Christian mythology uses them. No, no, they're, they're kind of metaphors. They're possibly more like, you know, Islamic, the Islam, the angels of, of, of Islam, these sort of beings of light that move around. And, you know, um, I, I always think of the, when I've taught this in person to my undergraduates, I've also shown wings of desire when yeah. we read this, you know, just if, even for that, the scene in the library in Berlin, you know, where people are, are thinking and reading from these books and these, and, and the angels are sort of moving around and, and, and um, listening to them. And it's just the most kind of beautiful version of this, of these, of these poems in some way of what, of what they kind of, what they may be. But yeah. let me ask you something about these angels. And, and I, I was thinking of one of your poems, this poem, um, Shanty, in God of Nothingness, where you're kind of recollecting a sort of poor little house-like structure near where you grew up. And this poem seems to be the effort to remember the people who lived there, who really have no left no trace sort of on the consciousness of the world. But your poem tries to make them, and then you say in this poem, Poverty is not poetry, this I know, but these pictures are what's left of childhood. And then you go on about your own family genealogy. But I wonder whether the poem Shanty is a poem like what Rilke says, these things, these people are still with us. And we deny that death is with us. We think these people are dead. We mourn things as a process and then we're kind of over it. And you're saying, well, they're actually around us in a different way. Mm. I think that, um... You know, I, I, that, that's one of the things that I really love about these poems um, of, of Rilke's is this sense of, you know, um, when we read these poems and kind of enter into them, it's, it's, it's as if I know these poems so well at this point, they feel like houses that I get to go into. You know, that they're these sort of spaces that I get to enter into. And I know where all the furniture is and I know where things, where he left things. And, you know, there's there's the kind of murky corner that you don't really want to go into. Or, you know, I mean, there's the, there's the bright sunlit parts. So they feel like these spaces that I can kind of move around and be in. And, and the voice in here, you know, in these poems, I've described it as being posthumous, you know, that that the the voice in certainly in this first in the first elegy is oh. it's as if it's speaking to you from beyond, from the grave. It's so, but it's yet it's so animated and it's and it's so alive. I think of Dickinson's, you know, that the the handful of poems that she has of these, of this kind of different consciousnesses that are dead and gone and yet they're still intact and they're speaking they're actually often sort of creepy and rather haunting poems where she's right. you know speaking from the crypt she hasn't gone to heaven she hasn't transcended she's right. somewhere in this realm of the dead and she's speaking sometimes they're even a little comedic you know i heard a fly buzz when i died that one is is like so darkly comic Right. Um, but, um, you know, these, these poems are much more, in some ways they are consoling uh, in Rilke, but they're, they're not, not in the way that, um, you know, they're not Christian, 
right? They're not consoling in a sort of Christian way. They're, they're consoling in that they, they move into this, you know, toward the eternal. And, and I just, when I kind of read these poems out loud, I sort of feel like I'm reanimating this voice. It's like you're breathing in air and you're speaking out these words once again, which he once spoke, which he wrote and thought. And it's like, you're, you're kind of bringing him back. You know, it's, it's an amazing, it's the great magic trick of poetry that it's able to do that. Well, what you're saying, we're, we're speaking the words or hearing the words that someone spoke and they were filled with breath and life. And we do that again, that poetry has this kind of strange power to make us feel present, something that isn't present any longer. The, the, the lines you use from the first elegy in, in your book, God of Nothingness, are, are interesting because they are Rilke says the angels shouldn't be scary to us. They can move beyond between life and death constantly. They don't really know the difference. They're these kind of beings that float in between the space, but they can alert us to some possibility. And the quote, if I can read that quote, I was interested that you picked this to sort of start your book out. It's Rilke saying here, it's very strange no longer to live on earth and habit the earth and no longer do the things we used to be doing. This is what the dead go through as if they sort of just, they went somewhere else and then they do new different things. And then you say, this is a quote from Rilke, strange not to go on wishing one's wishes, strange to see what was once so connected drifting in space. And I thought what's kind of what you said, kind of uplifting and strange is sort of say, oh, we could actually be free from all these obsessive attachments every single day. And there's a way of being where some things are just floating around and they don't, we don't have to obsess how they fit together. Because he says later in the ethology, we organize things, they fall apart. We organize them again, then we fall apart. Like life is just this constant process of straightening up and doing things. And you're sort of saying with this quote, what if actually we recognize things that they're not so connected? We don't have to do this work, but we could do another kind of work, which is to let go of one's own desire. Yeah. Well, isn't that a very, aren't we really talking about Buddhism here? And, you know, about, about a very Buddhist notion of, about attachment as being the source of all suffering, right? And, um, um, you know, that, that's a, that's a, um, uh, of course, the thing that it's it's good to remind oneself at, about, but it's also the reason I, I can't be a Buddhist, which is, you know, because I do, I am attached, you know, to the, to the world, but I love that quote for its reminder of that, you know, that it is, I, I, I feel that that is this, um, there's also something beautiful about that idea of just watching something turning in space, you know, that he, that image that he creates, and, and, and that's why I put that, put that in there. This was also, I mean, you know, I mean, in in the book that I uh, that of mine that you have there, it's much of it is it's a series of elegies, and yeah. um, I I pulled this quote that begins the book, um, and it was used at my father's funeral when he died because I was thinking a lot about that, you know, having been there with him when he died, this idea of seeing someone begin to detach, you know, be actually have to sort of you know, make that great transformation that we all have to make and yet remains essentially mysterious to us. 
right? So, um, you know, I, I, I found great comfort in that quote. And so I really wanted to begin the book with that as well. Was there a sense when you read that, and this is very personal, but did you think there was a sense of your father at that time being able to see things as less connected to let to see, or is it for you as it for your feeling to say, okay, I have to let go of something, but there's for in a Buddhist way, there would be a letting go that is also a freeing that is an expansion of the mind, not a retraction of grief. Yeah, I think I saw him, um, you know, and letting letting go of things for the whole final year of his life. You know, I think that he understood what was what was happening at times. He struggled against it certainly, and you know, resisted it. Sort of uh, returned to kind of cling to things um, again, but. One could see it as a sort of process that took time as he understood and, and began to comprehend his own mortality at the end of his life. I think that the quote probably speaks to both, you know, of that, of having borne witness to that, to his death, um, but also reminding myself of that as well, you know, that um, there's, there's nothing in this world that we're not going to have to let go of. So there's, you know, not, and, and, um, and that's, that's, that's just a, a sort of essential truth. I think we resist or learn and then forget all the time because actually what struck when you're talking, it's, I actually started translating Rilke's letters because I read one of the excerpts from the letter at my father's funeral. And the letter that I quoted is when it said, when someone who's close to you leaves you, you are left with a hundredfold of the tasks that this person could not complete and you're pressed more deeply into life. And that part of the sentence, I didn't understand at all for at least 10 years, because mm -hmm. I said, I'm not pressed more deeply into life. I'm removed from life. I didn't feel alive. I felt detached. I felt, um, not connected. So this idea that out of loss, you could actually experience life more fully wasn't available. And there was a kind of anger in me almost that I, and then, which was really helpful. So I read this quote for years and I have it in my head and I know what he meant. And welcome means not in a dumb way, he said, but pain is an intensification of experience. And as awful as it is, it can allow us to be more alive to ourselves. Mm. And not in the simple dialectical, oh, pain is good. And this is not at all what he's saying. And he actually, and then the other part, we'll have to talk about that. Wilke wrote all these poems, everything. And then when he dies, which was terrible of leukemia and suffers greatly, he says, all of this was in vain. None of this worked. He writes a letter in pencil to Lou Andrea Salome and says, I tried in my entire poetry to make sense of death. And here it is. And it's only pain and has no meaning. But to go back to sort of your quote. It's a letter. It's a terrible, it's a heartbreaking letter. I think it's, it's totally heartbreaking. And it also is what he's saying, though. He says, it is our life's work to try not to be overwhelmed by the fact that we're going to die. He said, it will be futile. This is why I think he's very modernist. He's not a romantic. He's not a Christian poet. He doesn't believe in the afterlife. He said, there's nothing but life on earth. And that's why I liked your poem so much, these elegies. Uh, or which you call it basically elegies and God of Nothingness, your poems are so grounded in particular locations and spaces. Mm. And I found this really important to say there's nothing abstract. You're thinking about someone who lived there, someone you may have lost, but actually this is in a particular location that has a meaning for you. Mm. 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I guess I believe that poetry kind of lives in the minute particulars, right? That it's it's sort of in, in the details. Through specificity, we achieve universality. It's kind of not the other way, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. Abstraction doesn't really do that. Um, it actually is, is about kind of telling an individual story. I think in poetry, but kind of um, speaking of, an, of individual experience in order to, to achieve that. Um, so, I, you know, I, I do write about specific locations. And, and the other thing is that I, I, I think as a poet, I just, I like describing things. And I also like to tell stories, essentially. And so I, I don't really, I often begin with those, with those things. In this case, with this book, there were so many there were, there were people, um, conversations I'd had, relationships with people who were dying. And I, I felt this great kind of urgency to get it down, you know, to write it down, to, to remember something about them, to capture what it felt like to know them, but also what it felt like after to lose, you know, what it felt like to lose them. Because, you know, the other thing about kind of Grieving, and I think grieving, of course, is is all throughout the Duino elegies in many ways. You know, it's elegiac tone that is happening here. Um, the thing about it is that it also goes away. You don't really, you know, it it sort of comes and goes, and that going away begins to mean that the per you're losing hold of that person in some way. You know, if the if the I think of Queen Victoria remaining in mourning for the rest of her life in some ways to hold on to her, you know, for years to hold on to him as opposed to transitioning out of that state and having those days when you might not think of the person at all. But I wanted to ask you when you felt like you wanted to write these places down or these people's lives down, these stories down in your book, Rilke says somewhere, it's our task to basically let the earth appear to us for the first time. Because there's a part, I think he's very convinced that there's no meaning in nature. There's no meaning in anything actually, but it's our responsibility, not just we can just be indifferent to it. We actually have to make it meaningful through language. So while poetry and consciousness is this intervention in the first elegy, that we're too aware, unlike the animals or children, it's also the way in which if we can really give it expression and words, it comes to life for us. So I always think there's a kind of ambivalent or a kind of two sides to language and poetry. It's the kind of self-awareness that is the, the veil that we have that animals lack this self-awareness, but then poetry can break through it by properly sort of giving it to us in language for the first time. Yeah, and, and you know, I think that, um... It certainly is. Um, that is certainly the job, I think, of, of poetry to try and and do that. But you know, if you're someone who doesn't doesn't as as Rilke does, as you point out, you know, he's not. He doesn't believe in the afterlife. He doesn't believe in the sort of that that experience means something necessarily. But he wants experience. He to mean something. <laughs> Right. You know, I mean, he right. wants that to happen. And so what do you do in that, in that situation? Well, he tries to sort of describe and to sort of pin down experience by putting it into poems, by making it into this complex individual work of art, which is what a poem is, right? So that, that begins to do that. If you're someone who doesn't 
you know, if, if you believe that this is it, this is the one rodeo and, you know, where it's like when you die, that's, that's it. How do you contend with that idea and, and, and how do you then make meaning of your experience? Is pain, do you learn from pain? Does it mean anything? Is it, is it just like a terrible thing we all have to go through? At the end of his life, he seems to say in that letter, yeah, you just have to go through it. You just right. suffer. But so many of these poems that he's written leading up to that are saying, actually, no, you know, there, there is, there are these things that you can do and make and inhabit that, that can help make the incomprehensible imaginable. I think the quote you use, which is strange not to go on wishing one's wishes, could be something like, what if desire, what if you actually stayed with desire and you didn't think it had to be fulfilled, which is Anne Carson's idea in her book, Eros, The Bittersweet on Sappho, where desire is not constituted as lack, I want this, I want this object, I want this person, I want this recognition, I want this honor, I want this money, I want this thing. But if you don't keep on wishing, then your wish is the state of your being. Then it's, you're fulfilled with, and this is, I think, what Wilk is so interested in in the elegies. We are constantly kind of at the verge of being more. We're filled with what other people would call life or it's maybe Freud would categorize it as the id or something like that. There's something in us that wants. And this quote you're quoting is, what if we just kept on wanting without an object? That would also be Buddhist in a way because um, Buddhism, as you said earlier, there's a kind of possibility. It could just be the negation of attachment. Um, I once had a, a Rinpoche from Tibet who lives in Kashmir now come to my class and one of the students said, oh, so Rinpoche was a kind of very cool student. He said, so when you, when you kind of reach enlightenment or the state of, of awakening, like then, then you're free, right? And then the Rinpoche said, well, that's a great question. But you know, once you reach that and I've been practicing for 62 years, then you're connected to the whole world and you're obligated to all suffering. And then the student said, Okay, never mind. Never mind. <laughs> of course, yeah, of course. And, and Rilke wants to do something. There's a kind of intensity in life one could maybe learn by letting go of certain things. If you don't feel, oh, I'm going to have this desire, I'm going to get this fulfilled now, then it's just the next thing has to come around because we always want more, better, bigger, et cetera, et cetera. But to stay in this state, I think in the first couple of elegies, I guess if we could just hover in this state of constant expectancy. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's one of the things about, about writing poems is that, you know, when we read a poem, we think it's, it's the poet has said this thing in the poem, so it's therefore what they believe. Yeah. Not necessarily, you know, yeah. I mean, it's like they're, tr they're trying it out by writing it down, you know, I mean, that's really what it is. It's, it's a poem is as much the sort of uh, the, the, the evidence that you leave behind in pursuing a question. You know, and and it's that that it's it's not the it's not the answer. It's actually the evidence of the pursuit. Um, it's the mm -hmm. the poem is the question itself, mm -hmm. and and that I think is so much the case here with you know uh, within the Duino elegies, which are are so they arrive at various conclusions, but they're, they're amorphous in so many ways. There's an unformed quality to so much of it, but he's trying out these ideas that he's having, you know, this, um, 
and and he and they all kind of coalesce, and you can see him having done this over his other poems. These these ideas he he brings up, you know, you grow your death inside of you. You um, the 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 idea of das offene, you know, the openness, um, you know, these other these other things, um, and then it all kind of comes together in these ten poems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the great thing that he, I think, achieves in these. I, I, I think you're right. And there's a kind of questioning. And then there's a sense Rilke wants to answer something. When he finished them in 1921, he finally finishes them, which I guess is 100, 100 years ago, right? Is that right now? Yes. Actually, next February, February, very important. So Rilke starts him in 1912 in Duino in, in Italy. And then he writes the first one. He, he, was write, he was reading Shakespeare's King Lear at that moment. So he's kind of infused with this like the poor thing on a on on heath, sort of this barren thing. Very lonely and isolated individual. And then he writes him. And then he's 10 years later, he finishes them in a few days. And then he writes 50 sonnets to Orpheus, quickly dashes them off. The, the woman who does his housekeeping at the time, she has to put the food outside. And she said he was standing on a chair and writing sometimes only a word on a page, dashing them off 12 hours a day, wrote 50 poems quickly, and then he was done. And then he transcribed them and then he sent them to his publisher and said, they're perfect. You can typeset them like this. Wow. No revision. Her last name is Wunderly, as I remember, isn't it? That's right. Wunderly. Yeah, she's one of the great patrons, one of his best friends. He has two volumes of poems to her. She's a Swiss woman who, and he has a lot of enabling, actually, what I wanted to say earlier, when you said what poems do, they write their process, not the product. They're kind of searching. A lot of his letters are courtship letters. He seduces all these women, all of them. They literally would get letters, and then he would write them three, four letters a day, and they would all fall in love with him through these letters. And this was an important part of what he kind of conjured into reality, <laughs> these relationships, right? Yeah, there were a lot of girlfriends. Yeah, <laughs> and they were always really amazing people, pianists, yeah. painters, like the uh, really incredible women. And the, the interesting thing is all these women, almost none of them felt bitterness or rancor afterwards. The princess, Marie Fontana Taxis said much later, I could have bought a bunch more fur coats and diamonds and instead I sponsored the world's greatest poet. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, you know, I, I think of, um, I, I was talking about this sort of uh, a student had a question about um, you know his his relationship with his mother and you know the, the way in which motherhood is portrayed in the poems and things like that and I said well you know I, I mean not to we can talk about what's in the poems and we can talk about his life and sometimes these things inform each other and intersect but a lot of times of course they don't um, but I I was saying like the one you know he loved women and. He met incredible, and he had these incredible women in his life. I mean, really, these women of great achievement and intellect and, and artistic merit. And, and, um, and it's true what she said, you know, he wasn't, um, I, I think he was probably like a great boyfriend to have, a great lover that people, they, women really, you know, liked his company. Many of them did, and he was just a great seducer, you know, um, in the best possible way. And that's kind of that's lovely, you know. I mean, he was he was someone, um, you know. He he wasn't he obviously wasn't intimidated by these women, and he wasn't trying to, you know, um, best them. It didn't seem like he was competitive with them, as from I, what I can tell. Maybe I think I, that's really important. I think he's actually quite unusual because he takes them very seriously. 
Yes. He seduces them. He, he does. He has many different relationships, but he takes them very seriously. He takes women incredibly seriously, and there's a kind of it's kind of amusing and sort of expected backlash to Thomas Mann says scathingly, oh yeah, Rilke with his adolescent readers and all these quote, Jewesses who read him, who's married to a Jewish woman himself, Thomas Mann, he dismisses them. Brecht said this bourgeois effete, he keeps on, keeps on saying Rilke is so effete. They keep on disputing his masculinity because he takes women seriously. And then they're kind of angry because he's also super straight. He actually loves women. Yeah. So the, the male poets cannot really abide him. And they're also incredibly jealous because he is a, an incredibly famous poet in his lifetime. People write to him from all over the world. And I always love the fact he responds to schoolgirls. He writes this incredibly moving correspondence to a 16-year-old girl who falls in love with a 25-year-old woman. And her family wants to basically put her into psychotherapy. And he says, but this is much more than sensuality. This is a possibility of love and you must honor it and take it seriously. And it, it's, but it's a schoolgirl. Right. <laughs> it's not a patron, not a princess. So he has his opening. I think the, in the elegies, what's interesting when he says, in love, we have this capacity not to just live our lives and expend ourselves. There's a kind of reciprocity. Because he says the angels, there's this, the model of the angels in the second elegy, which I always love. He said, we kind of basically are like a hot meal and steam rises off us or we breathe into space and it never comes back. And the angels, they recapture their magnificence. Yeah. But they're not static. It's a weird kind of magnificence in constant change and becoming. And that's, I think, not the Christian angels, which are these kind of rock solid sort of messengers from God. His angels are totally fluid. They keep on rechanging all the time. Yeah. yeah, I think of them as, you know, these sort of uh, manifestations of, of light and change, you know, it's, they're a kind of metaphor for that as well. They, you know, it's, it's, they're never really quite embodied, you know, he's never describing them physically. They're not, you know, they don't exist that way. And of course the, the, um, you know, um, just what I mean, one of my favorite lines, Ein jeder Engel ist schrecklich, is of course, you know, the, the it's it's just the most, it sounds so marvelous. It's so, it's like, it's, it's beautiful. And, <laughs> and it's that, it's that, um, and terrifying, right? So that I think is very much biblical, this idea of the you know that we always have these examples in the in, in in the Bible of when angels are appearing. There they are these often alarming, terrible, frightening. Um, sometimes they're just sort of passing, um, you know, and and not drawing much interest from the crowd. But sometimes too, they do. Um, and you know, I've I just love that idea of the of them as being a sort of as terrible or terrifying, however it is you want to kind of describe them. And, and as a native speaker, I, I would want to ask you your, your idea of that, of that phrase. How do you see that? Um, yeah, ein jeder Engel ist schrecklich. Every angel, each of the angels is terrifying, terrifying. Um, also monstrous, there's also something, it's, it puts a fright in you, it's really frightening, puts a fright in you. And since before that he says, 
um, beauty is nothing but the beginning of terror. I think there's, it's biblical and it's also, when we encounter something or someone very beautiful, we are unsettled. And Rilke says in a way that this is the first hint in the first elegy where it connects already to death. We're unsettled in our core to our core when we are taken. And I always think this is as banal as seeing somebody very striking and very beautiful and being struck by someone. That word we use in English, you're struck. Rilke says to stay with that experience for a tiny moment is very risky also. He said, it's very thrilling, but it's very risky. And we try to fend it off. And so Rilke says, if you allowed yourself in this way, he says, this is the same thing. We try to fend off any hint of death because it's terrifying. And he says, if we let it sit with us for one more beat, we would already have expanded our minds so much. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, it's a, it's that, um, several things that, that come to mind here, of course, that this is the, he's trafficking in romanticism here with the idea of the sublime, you know, of beauty right. and terror being linked. Right. But of course the thing about, about beauty is, is, and he, he writes about human beauty and physical beauty too in so many of the poems, but um, we also know that it's ultimately unfair, you know, that, that, that beauty is sort of, it's sort of um, a, a created, it happens, we all know it when we see it, but it's not something that is, it's not an achievement, it's not something you work for, you know, we understand that it is this thing that just kind of gets sprinkled around, you know, and, and, and therefore it arrives unfairly, mysteriously, um, and, and yet we're drawn to it, you know, we, it, it's, it's magnetic. Um, and, and, well, and as we said earlier, though, Rilke was not a traditionally beautiful person, not very handsome in a way, no, no. but the women thought he was the most spectacular, magnificent being they'd ever met. They really, you kind of read them and you think, they're not seeing the same person. Yeah. And there's, you know, the, um, there's a couple of photographs of him where you see where he has this really, there's a sort of slyness to him and you see a kind of look and, and you think, oh, I see it there. You know, you can kind of see the appeal. And there's that wonderful description uh, by Stefan Zweig where they go, he's trying to see something. There's, I'm, 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 I'm trying to recall it exactly, but there's a convent and the two of them wanted to see something in the convent, but it's closed. And, and so um, they show up at the gate and the, the, the nuns, he charms the, the nuns and they open up the doors for him. So for him to be able to look in and see, there was a painting, I think they wanted to go see or an altarpiece, something, and they let him see it. And it's, it's a very evocative and wonderful scene or recollection of what he was like. And, I often sort of think about that is charming his way into, even into the closed convent. <laughs> exactly, he's talking his way into the heart of these nuns of all things, which is- Yeah, yeah. If, if we wanted, I wanted to ask you one specific thing about the eighth elegy, and I know you're teaching a course right now, so you're probably not there yet, but it's, it's considered a very important one about the animal, and yes. of, you referred to this earlier. There's this line that he says, um, there's always world, we always have world around us and never, nothing without or nothingness without nothing. This idea being that animals live in a kind of unencumbered, non-consciousness, sort of just state of becoming, whereas we try to fix it all the time, know where we are and see the world around us. 
this is the moment where probably the elegies are the most philosophical in a way. And uh, we know that Heidegger very movingly stopped proofreading the galleys of being in time in 1926 when Rilke died. And he and Husserl spend a week reading Rilke's poems. Hmm. I mean, the thought that a poet would pass away today and anyone would take time out of their day to even read 10 lines. So this is Rilke, so he's so important, but yeah. in this, what do you make of this that he's saying the animals, when you, you look into an animal's eye, they look back at openness and we look at that animal. Well, it's, it's um, I, I love this poem so much and, and these ideas about, um, uh, about consciousness here and about, uh, and about, uh, you know, the idea of time really, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, and can, is it, is it possible now? You know, I, of course, there there is some evidence that animals do have a sense of this. Some of them have a sense of this. You know, elephants and other other creatures do. But he's you know he's he's speaking about this um, the, the being free of that, being free of the sense of one being tied to to time and to mortality. Um, and I think he's also speaking about the the way in which. You know, um, people who love animals used to love people. Isn't that a sort of phrase that that, <laughs> often, often that sometimes you hear? And and I think of that too. The idea of what is why are we drawn to animals? What is it about them that we're so connected to and drawn to? Why do we want them in our life? Why is the history of human evolution so bound up with them? Mm -hmm. And there are these animals that, of course, are in our heads and they're in our, you know, they're in our heads and we're in theirs. I think of dogs and horses and other, you know, other animals right. like that that we've domesticated that where right. we have this sort of interaction. But when they do look at us, um, they are, um, it's unclear what they're seeing. You know, it's very unclear right. what it is they're seeing. And yet we look at them and we recognize something. There is something recognizable. They're like us, but they're not like us. Their consciousness is unreachable to us. And right. that creates a, an unsettling relationship and yet a relationship that we keep returning to over and over again. And of course, the way he describes it, you know, immer ist es Welt und niemals nirgends ohne nicht. It's such a beautiful turn, you know, he's sort of rhyming and turning this phrase right. here. Right. And it's unclear to me, it's, you know, all of the translators struggle over this line. You see people coming up with different ones because you think, what is he, what is he actually saying? You hear it in German and it's, it's about this kind of rotation of these words, this returning of these words, echoing each other and repeating. And that, you know, how do you convey that exactly in English? The idea of the echo and, and something repeating, yeah. something unsolvable, unresolvable. That's what I sort of take from that, from that phrase. Um, yeah, yeah, no, it's really, you're right. It's kind of has this kind of internal echoes and it's like almost three times the same word. And he says, nothingness without not, without negation. He, Rilke was very funny. He was fascinated by Einstein. He loved Einstein. I didn't know he, that. He would follow the newspaper reports and he said, another triumph by Einstein who's convincing the world and at the last elegy, in the 10th elegy, he says something about being in space. There's always this kind of interest in space. So I think of this line of there's nothingness without nothing. 
And in the last elegy, he says, we would be almost baffled when something happy falls, meaning the earth, he said, plunges through space. We think there's an up and a down. He says, if we only knew for one moment, there's no up and there's no down, that actually up is down and down is up. And another poem, which is, they're very beautiful poems earlier, one about a ball, kids or people throwing a ball. He says, at the moment, the ball is at the highest, the apex, it's free. It's not falling, it's not rising. Or when we are on a swing, that moment of weightlessness. So he was always really interested in this weightless experience of having no negation, but not being dead. Yeah, well, you know, there's that marvelous moment in Orpheus Eurydice Hermes where uh, he's describing the descent into the underworld. And there's a moment where the lake and the sky are reflecting each other, or the, the sky is reflecting the, the um, the lake is reflecting the sky and, and it sort of inverts, you know, the way he describes it. It's like you're entering down into this world and there's this strange moment and everything is silvery the way he describes it there. The world is sort of this silver, the underworld is kind of lit, almost moonlit, sort of silvery. And, um, and there, you know, we encounter Eurydice who is, is now so fully um, distributed, so fully um, um, uh, taken into the world of the dead that she doesn't even recognize or can't even imagine. Um, she has no recollection of these people. She doesn't want to return. And she's also, her reaction is one of, of great, as if she's being assaulted, you know, and there's a kind of fragility that she, that she has in that she's, she's been completely, um, She's so utterly and completely dead, um, and it's just it's one of, it's one of the poems that's the most for me the most chilling. But it's also about this idea, you know. I think of that moment of of the turning of the world that happens there. Um, you know, this is a kind of common, um, not down or up uh, moment that I think, as as you point out, that maybe he's sort of part of his fascination with Einstein. It and if, they, if we don't know if Eurydice is, he is freed or torn apart, somehow he gives a space to this state of being, which is complete grief. She's just betrayed herself, her lover, everything. But there's a weird, like, where is she located at this moment? Yeah. It's, yeah. This, this, the first elegy also ends on this, this kind of um, mythology that music is invented, that sort of empty space resonates by the loss of a god and that vibration and emptiness is the origin of music or something like right there sir yeah. yeah i have a i have a um kind of a question for for you about the the way in which uh, rilke is thought about in germany today and in the german speaking world because you know i have a, a few friends who are are um writers and academics um in in europe and there's a um, I, I found a kind of skepticism, you know, there was a way in which he was be viewed by them. You know, I think American, Americans love Rilke, you know, and <laughs> like Americans love him. And, and there's also a way in which he's thought about that is, that is very often kind of devoid of the context in which he lived, you know, the right, dissolution right. of the empire, the first world war, um, you know, the, the being ending up in Switzerland as this sort of stateless person, you right. know, and, um, 
and, and kind of surveying the wreckage of Europe afterwards in this, um, in this way and then dying thinking he's a failure, you know, I mean, but that's this uh, part of his life, life story. But I found, I, I guess my, my assumption about this sort of European reluctance to kind of em fully embrace him anymore has to do with him being a kind of romantic, a sort of late romantic and knowing where romanticism ends in Germany, you know, in 1945. Um, it's sort of, it's a, it's a way in which that that's the sort of terrible endpoint of romanticism. Um, and then it has something new needs to be made. There's maybe two parts of the answer. The first is that I think Milka tries to understand how do we ground ourselves in modernity when all the great hope of religion and ideology is gone. So he dies in 26. And then what's going to happen to Europe is the great seductions of communism and fascism take over and throw hundreds of millions of people into ruin and disaster. But he's aware that we keep on wanting to find a greater meaning framework paradigm for our lives. We can only find it on our direct immediate experience. That's what his project was. So he's actually quite deliberately, I think, trying to move against this kind of political. He falls for Mussolini for a brief moment uh, very embarrassing in a certain way from the biographer's perspective, but then he's corrected, which is really fascinating, by a Italian sort of rich lady, Aurelia Gallarati Scotti, who says, Rilke, you have no idea about politics, you don't understand what's all what's going on, he's a strong man, he's a thug, he's going to beat people up, it's about violence, and Rilke said, oh, I thought it's restoring the Italian language. So he gets something really wrong about uh, politics. But to go to your second part, he's People are very skeptical because he's, his early poems are so incredibly well phrased and there's so much rhyme. Lou Andrea Salome said to him in the very beginning, you're rhyming way too much, it's too elaborate, can you just calm down a bit? So he was so gifted at constructing these poems which have internal rhymes and they just flow and you think there's a logic to them which skeptics, the deconstructive critic Paul Demand said he can't trust Rilke because he makes it sound like you believe it. And he said, that's the great art of poetry, actually. Yes, yes that's right. The great art of a love letter, too. You make it sound like, and then people believe it. But Germans, German speakers, and he's not a German poet. He grew up in Prague. He right. lives in Switzerland. He's now claimed like Kafka by the German. But he, people are skeptical because it's too sweet or too well phrased. And then there is another skepticism that Rilke is the, the last German poet in a way before the catastrophe of the Nazis. Yeah. So there's a kind of, in Germany, you cannot get go back to it. My way to Rilke was through Paul Celan, which I read for 20 years before, who's in a, historically speaking, a post-Holocaust poet who read Rilke in his youth in the thirties and then becomes a German language poet testifying to this breakdown of German culture. So I think there's a skepticism about, about Rilke because he's already in the 20th century. He's so close to modern Germany. He's not Goethe early, early 19th century. So people can't trust it. But at the same time, from the German former chancellor Schroeder who could recite poems by heart at public events to every school child to Lady Gaga's tattoo, there's a popularity of Rilke that I also feel feeds into the skepticism among academics because academics don't like things that the people like. So there's a kind of blacklist of authors, Rilke, Jung, Hesse, 
uh, Khalil Gibran, these people who millions of people read and cherish, and then academics say, oh, this is naive. Well, they're considered, you know, I mean, like these adolescent loves that people have, therefore not the, you know, not the the, the source of, ser of seriousness, right. but, you know, I mean, it's, um, <sighs> it's, um, yeah, I've, I've, I've sort of several thoughts about it, and, and certainly in thinking about Ceylon, you know, Ceylon becomes so influential for European poets after the war. I mean, he's like, he, he's, that's the sort of track that goes. I was very interested to see the consternation with which European, uh, literary Europeans dealt with the announcement of Louise Glick winning the, winning the Nobel Prize because, right. you know, I mean, when she writes about flowers and people think that they're, you know, they, they, they thought Novalis when, when, you know, they, they see that and they can't imagine that that still exists in, a, in, in this, you know, that track still kind of existed as it has done and flourished in the United right. States. But, you know, I, I've always kind of thought of Ceylon as being, he's the, he's the end point of something as well. You know, he's the beginning of something, but his whole project is, a, is, is, is one of, of dismantling. Right. And, and so, you know, what do you do after that? I mean, that's, the, that's always the question. Yeah. And Rilke sits between Baudelaire, who's sort of the first modern poet about modern experience under mass conditions in a disenchanted age. And Ceylon is the breakdown of the subject of history of Europe as a concept. And he writes in German against the sort of claim of that language. I think the other part, Rilke, the adolescent part is really interesting to me. I, I tend to think it's quite important what happens to us during adolescence. I want a very famous very, very famous American writer said to me, oh, you edited Khalil Gibran. That's for teenagers, uh, the prophet. And I said, have you, and I would, and it's not good. And I said, have you ever read it? And he said, no. And I said, but blank, actually what happens to us when we're 16, 17, 18, 19, sometimes directs us for the rest of our lives. Yeah. It's actually decisively important. So I think Rilke, the fact that people dismiss it because it appeals to adolescents, I would go back to what we said in the very beginning. Yeah. We should be so lucky to connect to that. Yes, I agree. And I also think, you know, there are these poems like, like all of, really all of the Duino elegies, but also certainly sonnets to Orpheus that are really challenging. They're not, they're, they don't give themselves up very easily. And, um, and you know, I, I sort of think of it in some ways as the, 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 the rather, um, uh, in some ways, inexplicable appeal and popularity of Robert Frost during his lifetime, who was also a poet of tremendous complexity and one who was very, like a poet of like hopelessness, you know? And so he I thought, really, I can't imagine that this, people were, were, were maybe feeling uplifted by those poems, but those, he's talk about godless, hopeless. There's no, there's nothing to be but a, rotting woodpile in the woods, you know? I mean, this is his vision of the human experience, all this effort, and then it just goes to waste. Um, and yet it's the writing of the poems that is hopeful with him. Like that's his gesture out to the world that he's actually constructing these, these poems that are so beautifully, sonically elaborate right. and, and give pleasure, you know? And that to me seems to be his gesture toward hopefulness. but. You know, um, I, I think with with Rilke in these poems, 
you know, what's unclear to me sort of what he's doing in that period between beginning these poems on the cliff of the castle and sort of writing, right. then the war happens. Right. You know, he's right. uh, forced into the war. It's, a, you know, he's out of the war. Um, and and then what leads up to him finishing these? You know, I mean, it's, it's almost a decade later. There's this great mythology. So he actually writes poems during the war, like hundreds of poems that are uncollected that are considered the silent period when other people would be happy to write hundreds of poems at that level. He writes thousands of letters, thousands. So it's a huge amount that he translates. He's translating Michelangelo actually. Mm-hmm. And then he, in the fall of 20, he, in 1920, he starts to kind of retreat into this little stone house in Switzerland. And he starts to sort of cut himself off and keeps on telling people, I'm not going to, keep my correspondence up, which is hundreds of people he's writing to constantly. And he says, I'm getting ready to, to do something. And then it kind of hits him. And I think there was a moment of recovery from after the war being thrown out of Munich. He's actually evicted from Paris 1914. He cannot go back because he's suddenly stateless, which is a totally, for us, we think Rilke, height of the European establishment. He has no home. He has no passport. He doesn't belong anywhere. He finally gets sort of some status in Switzerland through some rich people who he depends on for his whole life. And then he feels, I think, for the first time, he can settle down a little bit since 1914, because the world is totally, the world he lived in is destroyed. Yeah. The Habsburg Empire is gone. Prague as a country, is, as, a, as a city, is now no longer what he, so he now has a moment of respite. And then we can, end with Brecht, which always amuses me greatly when I think I wrote this to you in an email and Brecht says, you know, I don't believe in the bourgeois conception of genius. It's a masculinist fantasy of the individual achieving greatness. The only exception being Rilke. <laughs> so he's a real Brecht that it was a conspiracy by the middle class to make the masses believe in greatness. And he said, only Rilke except because writing those poems in five days, no one can do that. And I think what you're saying about Frost and the appeal, and I think, the appeal is this immediacy in the language and the, the graphicness of some of the images, which sometimes make you laugh out loud. Even in the elegies, you sometimes think, what? There's, there's, there's a brand of beer that's called Deathless. Like the sort of stuff in the elegies where you think the, the height of European civilization and he's talking about a circus. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the, the strange description of the bats as being these, you know, there's the gnats who are lucky and there's the bats who are unlucky because they don't, they're neither fish nor fowl, you know? I mean, they don't quite know what to, how to make of the, what to make of themselves. It's a, it's a, it, it doesn't make much sense, you know, when you kind of think about it, but he's, he's, he's getting at this idea of between states, you know, of, right. of things. Right. And, and in a way, those little bats are also stateless too, aren't they? I mean, that they kind of exist without, you know, um, being, you know, born from a womb, but having to fly, you know, I mean, this, this, um, this sort of uh, strange world that world they need to occupy. So (laughs) no, that's, that's actually right. That would be a whole disquisition on the animals in Rilke. I want to thank you, Mark, for being part of this. We could obviously go on on a whole nother set of other poems. Um, but I want to remind our listeners again, you can be found at, uh, it's Mark Wunderlich is your website. On Twitter, it's Mark C. Wunderlich. Um, the podcast on, on Instagram is thinkaboutit.podcast. I'm uli.bear. 
or Olivia on Twitter and please check out um, the information because we're going to put the references to your books, Mark, and to the things we talked about in the notes to this episode. Well, uh, thank you so much for this conversation. It was a real pleasure. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books.